regarded as a minor prophet. And uh, so I'm going to catch you up just real fast, get you up to speed on what's been happening. The opening verses of chapter 1 read like this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So that's verses uh, 1, 2, and 3. And, and so, you know, from that point, Jonah gets on this boat. He does not want to go to Nineveh because those people are his enemies, and he does not want to warn them about the wrath of God that's about to come upon them. So um, he gets on the boat. While he's sailing away the opposite direction of Tarshish, excuse me, of Nineveh, um, God sends a big storm, and this storm is big enough to terrify the sailors. And the, the sailors start asking themselves, you know, this is unusual. Surely someone is to blame for this. It was not um, uncommon at that time to blame um, natural events on the sin of, of somebody. And so they, they go down, they find Jonah underneath, and they ask him, are you to blame for this? And he's like, yeah. And so they say, what should we do? And he says, throw me in. And uh, so they, they, don't, they don't want to do that, but eventually they reluctantly throw him in the water. And so um, God saves those sailors, therefore, um, and he stops the storm. And then God also saves Jonah by appointing a fish to swallow him before he drowns. And then while he's inside the belly of this fish, he writes some of the most beautiful poetry in all of the Bible. Who would have known that that environment would be a good, inspiring place to write this? But um, it, God is so pleased with Jonah's poetry and really Jonah's heart that he's expressing, this heart of repentance in his poetry, that God commands the fish to spit him out safely on dry land. And so that's the, you know, that's the first two chapters, and uh, that's the first two weeks of Jonah, um, or the, of Jonah that we spent in the last two weeks here as we've been preaching through. So that last little bit about the fish, I bet some of you... Um, that makes you just kind of want to put the brakes on. And uh, if, if you find that difficult to embrace as historical fact, there's not anyone here that would blame you for that. Okay? Um, we get that. Just remember that the Christian faith hinges on many miracles, and Jeremy referenced this last week. Um, most namely, the fact that Jesus, by his own power, after he was crucified, rose from the dead. And so, as Christians, there are, there are miracles that we're going to embrace, or our faith is void. And um, so, if the creator of everything wants to appoint a giant fish to save Jonah, he can do that. And we believe that he, that he did, because he's God, and he can. So, you know, also consider that the writer of the book actually only mentions the fish two times. It's at the very end of uh, chapter 1, and then again at the very end of chapter 2. And he doesn't make it a big deal. He just kind of throws that detail in and moves on past it. And if this were fantastical legend, you would expect there to be many fantastical details about him being inside that fish. But the writer of Jonah just takes it as fact, moves on. He's not interested in creating this, um, this fanciful story for us. He's just telling us what purpose that fish serves. And that purpose does serve an important purpose in Jonah's life and the book and the story of Scripture as a whole. And so if, if we're, in fact, going to really understand what I think God wants to communicate in this book, there are three levels of story here 
um, that God is telling all at the same time, and only He can do that. God is um, a most masterful storyteller, and so, and you know, yeah, you can tell three stories at one time. Anybody can do that, right? You, you watch any kind of t- TV show, there's all these layers to the story, right? But God does it with real people in history, which makes Him awesome and the best. And so here's the, the three stories that, that we want to be watching for in Jonah. The first is the story of God and Jonah. So if you're a note taker, that's number one. The second one is God and Israel. And the third is Jesus and the whole world. And so you probably don't believe me about those second, second two, but they're there. Okay, I'll, I'll get to them. So um, we're going to start with what's on the surface, and that's this uh, interplay between God and Jonah. You know, it's tempting to just take Jonah and brush him with this very broad stroke. Um, because we often present this book as a children's story, right? That's probably, if you've heard this before, that's probably the first place that you ever heard it. Is, you know, it was a children's story, and so we focus on the fish. Um, but we forget sometimes that Jonah was a real person. Um, and, and if we can remember that, it'll help us to identify with him. And... Um, you know, like Jonah, we also are neither villains nor perfect saints. And I don't say saints in like the scriptural meaning. I just mean we're, we're not perfect. And so um, we want to serve him. But if we're honest, we all have these boundaries with God that we want to keep, right? We've got competing desires, and, and Jonah did too. Um, or, or it could be that in addition to these boundaries that we have, you know, God, I'll go here but not there. We also might have some sin that we want to harbor. And isn't that, isn't that true? We, you know, we can be here in the morning and we can listen and agree with everything that's said. And we can read in our personal Bible study and we can read in our, our, our GCs and we can agree with what's being said. And there are some things that are easier to embrace than others, right? And there's, there's some things that we might even conscious, consciously just say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's too far for me. And so then you just go on about your life. Um, and there might be something subconsciously that you hear that the Scripture is calling you to, that it's calling me to, and I might just kind of ignore it in the moment and then get to 12 o'clock, get to lunchtime, and then you know, things get busy in my life, and then I've forgotten about it and mission accomplished, right? I didn't have to make any big changes. Um, but as with Jonah, you know, now we're talking about that, that purpose that the fish um, serves. What it does is it causes Jonah to stop and reconsider his boundaries. It forces him to now step outside of what he would really want to just naturally do. And so for us, you know, probably not a big fish, but God will bring along a certain person or a set of circumstances, um, and those things will press in in our life, or he'll convict us with the Spirit, and it will ask us to really start to stretch and change. And sometimes that's very painful. Um, sometimes it's just quite gentle and it's just a whisper of the Spirit and we can respond. Um, but, but God does that in the way that He wants to and in His timing. So at the most surface level, that's what this book is, is really about. It's about um, a devoted and yet very imperfect follower of God who's got a boundary. All right? I will not go to Nineveh to preach to my enemies. But it's also about a merciful and loving God and, and this is important because he's committed to Jonah's good, but also at the same time, he does not care about Jonah's boundary. So how can those two things be? That you can be committed to someone's good and then disregard some boundaries. Well, 
That can be because God is God and he knows what's best for us, not us, right? So um, the storm and the fish serve as this thing that strips away Jonah's boundary and it's going to capture Jonah's heart and it's going to conform it back to what it is that God wants, to God's priorities. And um, you know what God's priority is, is really at its core, what his heart is all about, first and foremost, is mercy towards sinners. His position towards sinners is not first and foremost wrath. He gets there. But what he wants most is forgiveness and mercy first. And he just asks that we repent. And so he's given us all, including the Ninevites, that opportunity. And that's what he was asking Jonah to do. So we're going to focus in on chapter 3 now. And uh, this is verse 1. And I'll read the whole chapter. There's 10 verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So notice, these opening verses of chapter 1 are almost exactly the same as the opening verses of chapter 3. And this is intentional by the author. It creates these two parallel statements, and the storm and the fish rest in between. Pre-fish, God says, go, and the scripture says, but Jonah fled to Tarshish. Post-fish, God says, go, and then it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And so there's nothing like a fresh rescue from the Lord that awakens your desire to obey him. And if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know, you're, you're ignited when you first come to faith to just want to love and obey him. And then, you know, because the scripture never promises that life is going to be easy, then you're going to go through some difficult times and God's going to use that to test and refine you. And then when that thing happens and he rescues you from those circumstances or, or delivers or provides in those moments, now you're freshly again wanting to serve and obey him and that's just that's what happens with, with Jonah. He had been saved in a most miraculous way from certain immediate death. He was about to drown. And so, you know, his heart was hard, and he had forgotten how much God had been merciful to him. Um, but think about how patient God is with Jonah. God could have just found someone else and raised up someone else, but he didn't do that. Um, he orchestrated these circumstances because he does love Jonah, and he wants Jonah's heart to be drawn back to, to God's heart. So Jonah's now ready to embrace what God has for him. Um, he walks into the city, 
And he begins to communicate a very simple message. Verse 4 says this, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, this is only five words. And so, so we don't actually know if this is a summary statement. You know, maybe really he said a lot of other things, and this is just kind of the author's way of simply capturing that. Or maybe he said these things exactly, we don't know. The author's not concerned with that. The point is that Nineveh responded. They responded immediately with belief and then these physical demonstrations of repentance. And repentance just means that you're turning away from sin. And so, you know, they fasted, they clothed themselves with sackcloth, and then the king of Nineveh took it up a notch and sat in ashes. But um, fasting simply means that, we're, you know, you're not going to eat for some length of time. Um, sackcloth was this very rough, scratchy material, and it was made of goat hair. And I, I think it was black, and so just kind of extra, you know, representation there. Um, uh, and so if you've ever done um, like a, a potato race where you, you get in the sack and you put on that, that burlap bag, it's kind of like that. It would be in, terribly uncomfortable. And so they're clothing themselves with, these, with, these, uh, with this sackcloth, and they're not eating. And the idea is that you're rejecting all comfort so that you can just sit in your sadness over something. And so whenever someone would die, this would be a common um, response, just to mourn over the death of that someone that you cared about. Um, but in this case, what they're mourning over is their sin. And uh, as you read a little further, um, we kind of get the idea that maybe um, the king of Nineveh kind of issued this top-down command, hey, everyone's going to do this. And I think it's super interesting that he says even the animals are going to be covered in sackcloth and, fa- and fast also, which I've, that's just a funny image. Um, I, I teach this to kids. Um, and when I do, I, I just like to make the joke that maybe even their hamsters and their rabbits, their pets, were also covered in little tiny sackcloth clothes. Um, but, but obviously, this is a, it's an agricultural society. And so if you're covering your, your, your animals, your, it's your livestock. These are the, um, this is your daily activity, and this is your means of income. And so really what's happening is they're saying all life stops. Even the animals are going to take part in this. And um, we're not doing anything except calling out to God and asking for His mercy in hopes that He's going to relent. Um, and specifically, the Scripture says that they're relenting, or they're, they're repenting, excuse me, from the violence that was in their hands. Um, Nineveh was the oldest and most populous city in Assyria, and at that time it was the capital city. And uh, Assyria was everything anti-God. It was man-exalting. It was known for being just cruel and ruthless in war. And uh, it was an expanding, warring nation. And it was um, an imminent threat to Israel and to their security. And so, you know, I think that that point helps us to begin to understand the second level of story that's happening in this book. Yes, this book is about Jonah, the, the man, and his relationship with God. Um, and it is wonderful that for a time, the Assyrians would turn from their violence. But the fact that this book is included in the Old Testament is meant to highlight something else much larger. It's meant to highlight the fact that Israel did not routinely, did not respond to the prophets that were sent to it. God's own people and God's own prophets of those people were often sent to Israel and they would reject them. They wouldn't listen. They would not repent. 
Um, and so Jonah, this book in the Old Testament is basically a statement to Israel, and, and here's the statement. Even your enemies, those who have no history or relationship with me, those who have never experienced my love and care for them, or all of the depths of wisdom and blessing that I have to offer, all the miracles that I've done with you, those people have none of that. They're cruel, they're murderous, they're pagans, they're idolatrous, and they will respond to the word of the prophet, but not you. I love you, but you maintain a hard heart. And so this, the placement of Jonah in this book is just like, a, it's just like God just saying like, oh, I love you and you will not respond, but look at what they will do. And uh, Jesus, some six centuries later, sums up this idea, this, you know, the, the history of Israel's non-repentance. And it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 13. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that's the capital of, um, of Israel, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. And you can just hear the heart of God overflowing. With, I wanted to give you mercy. It was pouring out of me. It was ready. I wanted to take you in. And you would not respond. And because they were unwilling to respond, he judged them. And he judged them over and over and over again. Um, Assyria's repentance in this chapter was short-lived. In a generation or two, Assyria would be the nation that would come to the northern kingdom, to Israel, and uh, would capture that kingdom and take um, many of the people off into captivity. Um, and then not long after that, the Babylonians would come and conquer the southern kingdom. They conquered Judah. Same thing, drag them off into captivity. And then after these words I just quoted of Jesus, not long after that, 30, 40 years, Rome would come in and level Jerusalem to the ground. And again, it is, a, it is, it is God's wrath. It wasn't God's first position. God's first longing position was mercy. But then with continued, continued, continued rejection, yes, then wrath came. So um, let's, uh, let's talk about that third level of story now um, that God is telling in Jonah. Remember, uh, when Jonah was on that boat and the storm was raging and all of those sh- sailors were sure that they were going to die, they asked Jonah, they came to him and said, hey, what are we going to do? And he says, um, throw me into the sea, and then it will quiet down for you. So remember that Jonah's a complex and real person, and yes, in this moment, he is running from God. He's being disobedient with his life. But if you read this carefully, you do see that Jonah actually, he, he cares about these guys. He says, if you throw me in, then you will be saved. And so this selfless act by an imperfect prophet for a handful of hopeless men it foreshadows ahead what Jesus would do many centuries later for all of mankind. This points us toward Jesus. Scripture teaches that all people everywhere have sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And you don't have to be a, you know, a violent, murderous, warmongering Assyrian to have rejected, rejected God. Okay? So all of us have rejected God at some level. Um, and, th- and there's all kinds of ways to do that. Um, it could be that you're just an out-and-out atheist and you deny the very existence of God. Um, it could be that, on the other hand, you believe in God, but now you, you've become 
deeply religious, and it, and it serves as kind of like this, this guise or this, this mask over the sin and darkness that's in your heart. Or um, around here, you could be a cultural Christian where it's just kind of nice to, to just kind of blend in. Yeah, you know, you give Jesus a nod, but you're never really asking, what does it mean to truly submit to him? But all three of those instances, which would cover probably most of us, um, all three of those instances would still be a rejection of what God has done to cover our sin in Jesus. Um, and, and he doesn't just look over, her sin, over our sin, and he can't do that because he's just. And so what Jonah points us toward is this really, really good news, that Jesus has come. He did die the death that we deserve, and he lived that perfect life, and then he was raised from the dead so that we wouldn't have to suffer God's wrath. Jesus is the mercy of God. And, uh, you know, Jonah, I said, was an imperfect prophet. Um, Jesus was the perfect prophet. He never wavered from his mission, not once. Um, he came to enemies. He came to us. And he unwaveringly, lovingly, mercifully, with endurance and patience, came and suffered and died for us and for anyone who would believe. And so our only responsibility then, when, you know, with regards to salvation, is just for us to believe and turn from our sin. Um, so, you know, it may not look exactly the same when it comes to our repentance, um, as far as, you know, fasting and sackcloth and, and ashes. Um, but true repentance, if, if we are really believers, it means at some point we have come face to face with our sin and we experience some legitimate fear and some sorrow over that. But then quickly after, when we realize what Jesus has done for us, now there's this rest and knowing that now we don't stand condemned. That, we, that we've gone from enemies to being God's friend. That we are now in the family of God. And now we are meant to serve Him for His purposes. And so, you know, we kind of get removed not just from condemnation and, and, and this position of wrath to being in God's family and being a friend of God. Now we get removed out of our small little self-centered, you know, purposes and we get placed into this very large, big, huge, important story that God is still writing. Um, so, you know, more on that in a minute. But Jonah also points us forward to something else specific about, about, about Christ. Um, yes, the sacrifice of Jesus, but he also foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus. Um, at one point, first century, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As believers, we hold fast that Jesus our Lord was crucified, dead, and buried for the forgiveness of our sins. But then he resurrect, His resurrection, His ascent out of the abyss of the grave, is the unmistakable sign, the undeniable proof that what God did, He actually did. That, that it's true. Because He's alive, we can believe that it's true. That we are forgiven. And so, you know, I, I think now you know, we're asking ourselves, how, how do we respond? All of these things are true, okay? Um, Jonah was in that fish. He gets spit out. Ninevites repent. 
He, puts us, he, he points us forward to Jesus, His death and resurrection for, for us. So, um, what's next? Um, I, th- I think the first thing is that if you're a Christian this morning and you've experienced His salvation, I think it's important to remember that He hasn't saved us just to be saved, and, and then end of story. Um, he saved you and me for a purpose to go tell others about that mercy that we have received. First Peter um, chapter two, nine and ten. Um, Peter's talking about all Christians. Okay, so now we're in the New Testament. He says, "But you Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him." who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are to spend the rest of our lives communicating to others the mercy that we have received from God. That way, mercy doesn't just stop with us. That way it extends to everyone. So in our sphere of influence, who are those folks who do not know about the mercy of God? Who are those folks who still deep down in the darkest places of their heart are still wondering, God, what happens if I die? And they've got that unsettled, deep, just unknowing what's going to happen. But we know. We know. And we can tell them that mercy awaits and so, um, you know, how we kind of live that out and flesh that out is, is a whole other sermon. Um, but but let's just suffice to say that, that that's, that's mission for us. Um, secondly, um, repentance is absolutely for those who are far away from God. Okay? So if you're not a Christian this morning, please consider, please, please consider um, that what we're saying here and what the Scripture is saying, that it's true that apart from Jesus, you do stand condemned. But the heart of God is postured with mercy for you if you'll just embrace and believe. Um, but, but then also, repentance is not just for those who are currently far away from God. Jonah was not far away from God. Um, Jonah was a, was a prophet. And his writing in chapter 2, that, you know, that beautiful section of Scripture proves that that guy, man, he, he knew the Lord. And he was intimately acquainted with the forgiveness uh, and the character of God. He was close to God, and yet Jonah needed to repent. His face was set in the opposite direction, away from where God wanted him to be, but he had to turn in the right direction. And so repentance um, is for the brand new Christian. It's also for the Christian of 70 plus years and everyone else in between. Um, repentance is for the person who serves by speaking up here. It's for me. It's for Jeremy. Um, it's also for the person um, who's, who leads a GC. It's for the person who serves in the nursery. It's for the person who's just kind of coming along into our body and just starting to come to Bible studies and get to know people. It is for everyone in every single role in God's church. And uh, repentance is, is a lifestyle. Um, it, it is a daily discipline. And it's absolutely imperative for us to maintain our usefulness to God. And so, yeah, it's going to look different um, than, you know, our, our culturally, we, we don't do sackcloth and ashes. Okay? We, we, we just don't. Um, fasting, maybe. That, that, yeah, maybe. Okay? Um, 
But repentance does mean that we are committing ourselves, we're making a choice to turning and heading in the opposite direction of sin. And so if we're caught up over here with this particular sin, whatever that may be, and if we're still kind of, you know, we haven't turned all the way from it and we're kind of, kind of leaning in toward it, you know, and then we kind of face it, and that's not repentance. Repentance is here's the sin, here's the choice that I'm making, and I'm going to head the opposite direction away from that. And that is for everyone all the time. It is daily. And it is imperative that, that we do it. Um, in Matthew 3.8, John the Baptist is talking with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Did you hear that? Keeping with repentance. Um, it's ongoing, and it is for, it is necessary to our fruitfulness that we would produce spiritual results in our own lives and in the lives of others. You cannot be effective for God if you are not repenting, if I am not repenting constantly away from the things that my flesh is drawn to. And so, you know, this only happens if we are consistently exposing ourselves to the Word of God. If you're just hanging out there in the world and you never open your Bible and you're never around other believers, you're not going to have anything to, to just remind you of what the character of the Lord is. Um, my, my oldest son and I, we were cleaning windows down here at the well. And I have a, I have a new respect for people who clean windows. Because I thought, hey, you know, it's pretty easy to get a squeegee, you know, get, get the mop, wipe it all down, you know, and, it, and it's done. So we did that. It was, I think it was last Sunday afternoon. And it, it wasn't perfect. We knew that, all right? But it looked better, we thought. Um, but I get up and go to work the next morning. And there's this line of buildings right here. And as soon as the sun comes up, over that building, that light is directly on those windows. And I swear to you, they were worse than when we started. Um, and it's okay. Like, we got a ways to go to make them look better. All right, it's okay. But here's the point. The Bible and other believers who are walking with Jesus, they are like that light that's coming in those windows. And it's exposing all the areas of our lives where we don't match up with the character of Jesus. And so, um, if we are reading Scripture daily, yes, we are more likely to be exposed. And that can be a scary thing. Um, but remember, what is the posture of God? The posture of God toward us is mercy. And so, anytime that He exposes sin, He does so gently. And if, if, it's, if the exposure of sin is not done gently, um, then, then it's, probably, it's probably not the Spirit. Probably it's you just feeling some, some shame and not embracing the, the, the forgiveness of Jesus. Um, but He exposes things gently, and He exposes sin in our lives gradually. If He was to show us, you know, like that light did, um, this is where the analogy breaks down, that light showed us everything. God is graceful and doesn't do that. He doesn't show us everywhere we fall short all at once. He shows us gradually, and He gives us time to respond. And just when we think, oh, okay, like... I feel pretty good about this area. You know, either we backslide a little bit. It's just life, right? It's just Christian life. Or then we realize, oh, wait, I've been blowing it in this whole other area of my life for my entire life, and I'm just now seeing this. But then that's another chance for us to just embrace the grace and mercy that flows out of Jesus just freely. Um, so um, let's, uh, let's read Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.12-13 says this, that the Word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Read one more. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we see in these two passages, it is meant to expose sin. That's what it does. It's meant to correct us. It's meant to point us back to the Lord. And it's also meant to make us sharper tools in the hands of our God for His kingdom. That's the point. And so, you know, we want to be real careful. Um, you can read the Scripture. You, you can listen to the Scripture. And you can actually read it with not that intent. It is very possible to read the Bible and then only be concerned with the, the nuance and the deep theological questions. And those things are good and fine. But that's not ultimately what the Scripture is for. Understanding the theological um, nuance, dealing with all those difficult issues, that is a step in the right direction. But if you stop there, you haven't, you haven't lived out 1 Timothy 3 or, or Hebrews 4. Because all of that is meant to actually make us more useful to the Father. That's the point. More like Jesus, more useful to Him. And so when we're reading and before we um, sit here and when we're at GC, I would, I would recommend just a very simple prayer that you can pray together uh, or that you can pray just in your own mind quietly. Just ask the Lord, will you show me how I need to be different today? Or is there anything that you want me to see today? We don't come to the Scripture just saying, you know, I want to master it. We come to the Scripture saying, I want it to master me for His glory. Um, you know, it's interesting that the Ninevites turned away from their sin with such just apparent quickness and ease, right? Jonah walks in, they're like, oh gosh, you know, we're going to die. Let's change all of our ways. Um, Bible commentaries, they've got numerous theories as to why that happened. Uh, one commentator said, you know, maybe it was something about Jonah, that maybe the way he presents the message is just powerful, that he was a really good uh, communicator. Um, one commentator even, even suggested that, that, that there was um, a solar eclipse that coincided with his preaching. Well, sure, that's possible. And that just scared the socks off of the Ninevites. Um, and so now they're scrambling, right? Uh, the judgment of God is coming. Um, but once again, the author is not concerned with that. The author doesn't give us the details. What he tells us emphatically is that they repented. We don't know why. We just know that when the Word of God was put out before them, they turned immediately. And so may we, whether you are not a believer today or a believer struggling with sin or disobedience, whatever camp you were in this morning, may that be your response and my response, to turn away from sin immediately. Let's pray to that end, and then the band will come up and we'll sing some more. <clears throat> Father, we confess to you that we are just slow 
to, uh, to repent. That oftentimes it does take uh, a storm and a proverbial fish, something awful for us to, to want to turn back to you. So we just ask forgiveness for that. We just confess the condition of our hearts that we are prone to wander away from you. And um, we, just, we ask for grace. And we ask for the mercy that it takes to, to feel our sin in a different way that we might hate it and want to turn away from it. And Father, there's, you know, there's probably people in the room this morning that just don't feel anything to that regard. Um, would you help us to feel that way? Father, I, I know that we can just confess that and then you are the master of our hearts and you can get us to the place where we need to be where we actually will hate and turn away from sin. So we leave all of this into your hands knowing that there's things that we just we can't do. But Lord, we want to try. Lord, help us to, to obey you in every regard in which you command that what we might be more useful to you. Amen.